Amen. Take your Bibles, turn to the book of Revelation. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 1 today. Like I said last week, we started with looking at the seven letters to the seven churches. And we started with the motivation behind it, the one writing the letters, that Jesus is the one that is behind these letters and what he is writing to the churches. And then this week we're going to begin by diving into those letters. Now I want to tell you something today as we get prepared to begin. Uh, I just want to let you know something, that this is not going to be one of those sermons that has lots of personal illustrations or illustrations from the world, or I don't have a good story to kind of begin with and get into. And part of the reason for that is as I began to unpack and to study and to think about this particular passage of Scripture, it is a very straightforward passage of Scripture that I think demands for us to give it the attention of just reading and reacting and understanding what is there. It is foundational because the way that this particular letter is written is the same way that all the other letters are written. Now, there are parts that are left out of other letters. There are parts that may be added. But this is the general basis and the understanding of how these letters are going to be written. Now, part of that is because Ephesus holds a special place kind of in the history of the church and in this particular area. It would have made sense for Ephesus to be the first church listed from a geographical point of view. It was one of the four largest cities in the Roman Empire. It was a vastly important city on the edge of a, on the edge of the sea where it was a huge trade place. And so it would have been natural for them to start that way because this was, as I said last week, a mail route that goes from Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamum to Thyatira to Sardis to Philadelphia to Laodicea. Like, it's just a route that they would have gone. But it's also that Ephesus holds significance spiritually because Ephesus was a church. Priscilla and Aquila probably helped start it, but Paul had spent a significant amount of time there. Paul had helped pastor this church at one time. And there are many people that think that one of their later pastors was John himself. So if you think about a church and you had a list of pastors, I'm sure there are churches with some prestigious list of pastors, but none of them probably can compare to Paul and John. Right? Those are pretty good. And so they would have had some spiritual prominence. They would have had some legacy. They would have been the church that people would have said, hey, you know about that Ephesian church. Now, we're not exactly sure how all of this was going on, but there's also the chance that this is not one church located in one place. But these are house churches that would come together on kind of a regular basis and meet together in that way. And so when the first letter is being written, it's going to set the standard for the other churches. Now, here's what I want to just talk about for just a moment. I think we touched on this last week, but I want us to think about it as we're diving into these letters. How many churches are letters written to here? How many churches are in these letters? Seven. In the Bible, what does the number seven represent? It's completion, right? And so it perfection or completion. Now, I'm not going to get deep into kind of symbology and all of that, but I do think that this number represents the churches that were there in a practical sense, but also that it represents kind of an understanding that all churches that have ever existed can find in themselves some help from the letters written to these seven specific churches. 
And so as we open up God's word today, as we begin with that background, I want to ask the question, what is Jesus saying to our church through this letter to the church at Ephesus? Chapter two, starting in verse one, and we're going to walk basically through it. The points of the message will be found in the text as we go. Chapter two, verse one, right? So that's Jesus talking to John, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. All right. Writes to the angel of the church in Ephesus, thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So a couple of things that are important for us to understand at the very beginning that we have to figure out before we get to the rest of the letter. And that's, first of all, who is writing these letters? I mentioned it earlier when we had our prayer time earlier. So you tell me, who is dictating, saying these letters? It's Jesus. How do we know it's Jesus? Well, he gives a description of himself that will be all of these letters will pull some sort of description from the description given in chapter one about Jesus. Now, to whom are these letters written? To the angel. All right. So when I say the word angel, what do you think of? What do you what normally if I would just like I heard somebody say pastor out there, we'll get there in a minute. All right. I know you think of your pastor as an angel. That's not what it's really here. Like. So when, when I just say, if I was just to say to you and say, man, I saw an angel the other day, you would think of something like cosmic or supernatural, right? I mean, because in the Bible, generally, when an angel shows up, it is a, an angelic being, an actual spiritual creation of God that is part of the heavenly worship crew and crew that assist in doing the work of God in part of Spiritual warfare, we think about angels and then the fallen angels that are demons. And there could be that this passage of scripture, when it says angel, is talking about that. But that word, angelos, angel, was there in Greek long before it was used to describe spiritual beings. And in their day, it also just meant a simple messenger. Like, I am sending this with an angel who will take it. In fact, it's one of the few words that comes almost directly from Greek. In Greek, if you were to take the Greek word and spell it out, it would spell out A-N-G-E-L. Almost exactly what is exactly, right? How we spell angel. And so it's taken specifically from there and it meant messenger. And so in this instance, the question is, are we talking about a spiritual being that is overseeing the churches? Well, the reality is that this angel is expected to deliver the message to the churches. And from everything we get from this passage, that is going to be someone who is physically present with them, not a spiritual being only. And so the best we can tell what is happening here, what most scholars think, and I agree with this, is that when the word angel is used here, the word messenger is used here, that what is implied or understood is that these are the pastors of the churches. And so what Jesus is saying is, John, I'm going to give you a message that you're going to give to the pastor that the pastor is going to give to the churches. 
And that's more significant than you may think on the front end because it is a direct line of authority that God has given to the one that is overseeing the ministry of the church in a specific place. And in this case, the pastor of the church in Ephesus is going to get this letter. And then he gives us two pictures here. And we don't have to worry about what these pictures are because he says this is the one who holds the seven stars in his hand. Because at the end of chapter one, it told us that the seven stars are the seven angels and walks among the seven golden lampstands. And the point Jesus is making, and we need to get this from the very beginning, is that he has the authority to declare what he's about to declare, that he is in complete control. What's interesting is that the word that is used for holding here is not the same word used in chapter 1. This word is to grasp or to snatch or to hold tightly to. The picture, just like we can say in our language, well, I was holding some money or I was grasping onto money. There's an intensity in the word. And the word used here in chapter 2 is an intense word of, I am grasping the seven stars in my hand. I am grasping the angels, the pastors in my hand. That means a couple of things. First of all, it means that Jesus is the one that has the ultimate authority in the church. That he is in ultimate control. Any pastor... That tries to put himself above the, leader, above the leadership of Jesus in a church is gravely mistaken. At the same time, it also means that that authority that is there is found in the pastor in the role to which God has given him. This is a weird thing for a pastor to talk about with his church. This is a much easier thing to say to somebody else's church. But the reality is that I am the pastor of this church. God has called me to be here. For the last almost 14 years, I have been called and have served as your pastor. Under the control, under the leadership of Jesus is my prayer. On a daily basis, my prayer is that I would lead under the authority of him. And one of the things that that means is there are certain responsibilities that I have as your pastor and I am accountable ultimately not necessarily to the people of the congregation. Ultimately, I am responsible and accountable to my God. And he is the one that holds me. He is the one that protects me and grasps me, and he is the one that has authority over me. But it also means that there is some sort of way in which that I am to be a conduit of a message from God to the people of this church, and that part of my major responsibility, if you will be, will to be the spokesperson for what God has called us to do, what God is challenging us to do, what God is requiring of us to do, that I am to be that. One And I have that authority given to me by God. And just as it is wrong for a pastor to try to usurp the authority that is given to him by Christ over Christ, it is also wrong for a congregation to usurp the authority given to the pastor by God. Jesus starts by saying, I'm sending a message to your pastor Who will give you the message because he is my direct contact. Now that doesn't mean that we don't believe in the priesthood of the believer. 
I believe every believer has a right to go straight to the Lord, has the ability to do that. But in a church structural authoritative setting, there is something authoritative spiritually and overall for the pastor of a church. He says, I hold those pastors. I grasp onto them. I protect them. And they're accountable to me. And I'll tell you that there are responsibilities that fall on me as your pastor that are heavy and real and that I feel. Scripture makes it very clear that no one should want to enter into the pastor unless they are called. My father-in-law was here a couple of weeks ago, and many of you know or have heard him. He's been here several times, and you know him as a man of great wisdom, and he is. And I remember um, the first time I met him, Susan and I were friends at Union, and um, we met in kind of a, a social kind of place. In fact, we were with a group of friends and went over to their house. They lived in Jackson, and I remember Susan introducing me and saying, this is my father, and I knew who he was, of course. He was the pastor of the largest church in Jackson, and uh, knew who that was, been to hear him preach, and admired him for that, and said, uh, he wants to be a pastor, and immediately you say that to Phil Jett. He pulled me off to the side and began a conversation. And I remember saying, what would be the best piece of advice you could give to a young pastor who is getting ready to go into ministry? And he said, if you can do anything else, do it. So that's not very encouraging, right? His point was that unless you are called by God, then you are not placed in the authority that God has called you to do it. So Jesus begins this letter by saying, listen, this is a message that I'm giving through the pastor who has the authority to give it to you. Now, here's the second thing. It says that he walks among the lampstands. Do you remember who the lampstands represent in chapter one? If you were here last week or maybe you just know this. What do the lampstands represent in chapter one and here? What do they represent? Churches, right? I heard the non-confident churches. Like churches, all right? Say it confident with me. Say churches. Churches, all right? So here's the question. In the first chapter, it says Jesus was standing among the lampstands. What does it say he's doing here? Walking. What's the difference between standing and walking? Well, movement. But what's the difference here? What's the difference? What what do you think it entails for them? What's the difference between me standing here and walking amongst you? Right? What's well, closer, right? So you got a group of people that are under persecution and they're wondering if everything's going to... I've never walked this far out with a microphone. I may, get, may begin to think, okay, is he with us? Right? Most of the time when we talk about Jesus being with us, we don't do it as an encouraging thing. Jesus is watching. Right? Like if I said to you, Jesus is walking amongst us right now, you'd be like, uh-oh. Right? But if you're under persecution and you're wondering whether or not he sees you and he knows you and he's with you, when it says that Jesus was walking amongst them, it means he was with them. It also means accountability. I just noticed as I started walking out, some people like duck their heads, like, please don't walk over here. Right. There's some uncomfortableness to it. 
There's some, I don't know if, like, that's great. He walked on that side. Please don't come over here, right? But there's some kind of thought about that. When Jesus says he walks amongst them, it does mean that he is with them. He is close to them. But he is also among them. And he's going to start in just a moment to tell us what that means for us. And so this opening introduction is, this message is coming from Jesus through the messenger, the pastor that I have in place, that I have put there, that I've given authority to you as a people among whom I am walking and apart and close with. And then he says this to them. I know your works, your labor and your endurance, and you cannot tolerate evil people. Now, again, I just want to remind us that most of us, if we thought Jesus was coming to us and says, I know what you've done. The first thought that most of us in our mind would not be, Woo, great. Let me know, Jesus. Lay it on me. We're going to be, uh uh-oh. Uh-oh. I think it's important that in these seven letters, if encouragement is there, it's always first. If encouragement is there. Now, we'll talk about some places some encouragement's not there. That's not where you want to be. But if encouragement is there, it's there. He says, I know your works. I know what you're doing. I know you're doing good things. I know you're out there in the community. I know you're saying the right things. I know you're doing the right things. I know your labor, that you work hard, that you're a church that comes together and whatever needs to be accomplished gets accomplished. Your endurance, that you have understood, that you are standing up under the pressure. The word there literally means to stand up under persecution. I know that you have endured, that you kept going, that you have prospered even in the midst of difficulty, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. He goes on to say, you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. I know, and he goes on to this endurance thing a little bit more, that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name, and you have not grown weary. He says, you're doing lots of really good things. You are standing firm on the doctrine of what I've called you to stand on. You are listening to the words that I have given you, and when someone comes in and preaches a different gospel, you are not listening to it. You are not allowing it into your midst. There are going to be churches to which he calls them out for allowing that into their midst. But he says, you're not doing that you're standing firm on the reality of what God has called us to do on what we know to be truth and you're standing firm in that you're enduring under persecution I don't know if you remember last week we talked about the man that was ruling at that time a guy named Domitian here's what's interesting about the city of Ephesus and not everything about the city of Ephesus is applicable to what's happening here but the city of Ephesus was known for a place that had all kinds of temples in fact one of the ancient Um, temples of the seven wonders of the ancient world was in Ephesus. But they also were the place where the um, cult of, the worship of Domitian, the ruler, was centered. If you remember last week, Domitian was persecuting Christians, even worse than Nero had. It was really on them. And he says that you have, in the midst of that, understood and endured the persecution that has come in your midst. You were doing lots of good things. I count somewhere between seven or eight, depending on how you split it up, positive affirmations that come to the church in Ephesus from Jesus. Their strength, their endurance, their doctrinal purity, 
their labor and their work. God is saying to them through Jesus that all of that is stuff that is important and good and right. Most people looking from the outside would look at this church and say they got the right programs and the right places with the right teaching. It all seems good. Everything seems fine. They seem to be pulling together. They're an activity church. They're a beehive of activity. They got all kinds of Bible studies and programs and what they teach is absolutely true. It's absolutely right. And they're doing service stuff and they're working hard. And there's lots of things that seem to be operating correctly. And he says in the midst of all of that, have you been enduring persecution In the midst of that, as you've been enduring hardship, you have stayed strong and not grown weary. I know your deeds. I know you got a lot of good stuff going on. But, he says, now normally in the Bible, when the word but is used, especially in Paul's letters, it's a good thing. Where he will list out how we are sinners, how we are hopeless without Christ, how we have no chance. He says, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that he died for us while we were yet sinners. In this case, though, the but is not good. Verse 4 says this, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Here's what's interesting. There is a lot of debate about what that means. And sometimes people get pretty cranky about it. And I think that misses the whole point. Now, oftentimes we've heard this, you've abandoned your first love. And that's not exactly what the original language says. It says it more like what we have here, which is you have abandoned the love you had at first. And so the debate is, what is that love? What does that look like? Is that love for God? Is that love for man? And my answer to that is yes. I think what is happening here is he says to them that you have generation after generation now. You're probably, this is probably a second generation church. And so the first generation was Paul's generation. John came at the end of that or was a part of pastoring this. John's now been away for a little bit. And they said, listen, what's happening here is the first generation did all that they did. All these programs, all the stuff they're doing, they did it from an absolute passion for following Jesus. A desire to follow Jesus and to love the people that are around them. And so the reason I say yes is this about God or people because I don't think you can pull those two apart. The greatest commandment is that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and spirit. And the second is related to that is to love our neighbor as ourselves. That they are inextricably together and you cannot pull them apart. You cannot diverge them from one another. That if you have a true and passionate love relationship with God, that will manifest itself in a relationship that is loving towards your fellow man. Then a true agape, as the word is used here in this passage, love of God, love of man, sacrificial love of man, where you are truly loving them in a selfless way, comes from a relationship that is vital with God. It's why in our purpose statement as a church that we exist to glorify God by leading people to become we use two very specific words passionately devoted that means that we are doing the things God has called us to do that we are all about the truth we are devoted to the right things but we are devoted with a passion that comes from our relationship with Jesus Christ 
And he says to the church, my fear is what it appears to me, or as Jesus is saying it directly, he knows you have lost the spark, the love, the joy that you had when this all began. We all know the joy of getting something new, right? New car, a new house, a new boat, a new toy as a child. I saw yesterday they're remaking one of my childhood toys into a new series, Masters of the Universe. He-Man and She-Ra. Anybody remember He-Man? We got eight of us. Good. That's good. The, one of the greatest Christmas gifts I ever got was Castle Grayskull from the He-Man set. And when that thing was new, man, it was awesome. You know what happens to Christmas toys by Easter, right? Right? They become old. In our lives, new things have a way of not being new for very long. And what Jesus says to this church is, I'm afraid that what's happened is you have started to do the things that you're doing, not out of a devotion and a passion and a love for me, but because you're doing what you've always done. Let me ask you, just simply, if you were to ask that question, or let me ask it this way, if Jesus were to speak to you about where your passion and your love for him is at this moment, would he say that this moment in time is the moment in time when your love for him is the greatest it has ever been? Or has life gotten in the way? Or that new has just not been as new lately? Because what's really behind this call to them is, listen, you cannot be sustained on the actions of Christianity without the relationship with Christ. And we're going to see in a minute, he says a church can't be sustained that way. Your life personally cannot be sustained that way. That leads to burnout in a place where you just have decided that you're done. Or criticism, and doing things with a critical attitude. One of the things that as I read this week that was kind of new to me as I read and looked was this thought that Ephesus had this prestige church kind of understanding and they were living on who they were in the past. I mean, wouldn't you talk about the fact that Paul helped start you and that John used to be one of your pastors and that they were living on their past and not looking to their future. And as a result, they were needing to regain a passion for Christ and not for just who they were as the church in Ephesus. Would Christ say to you, would Christ say to us, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. He gives them the remedy in verse 5. The same remedy he'll give in almost everywhere in scripture. It is a very simple remedy, but it's simply this. Verse 5. Remember then how far you've fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Remember then how far you've fallen. Remember where you were. Remember that time. Think back to that time when you were passionate about following Christ and you would do whatever for his name and for his sake. 
Repent. That's a good biblical word that just means change your direction. Say, I'm tired of living this way or I want to be back there and I'm going to turn my life around. I'm going to say, I'm stop doing this, stop doing that. Perhaps there are sins that have crept into your life that have prevented your love from Christ from growing. Perhaps there are requirements in your life, schedules in your life, money commitments in your life that have prevented you from being able to do that. And you need to clear all that out and say, I want to focus my attention passionately on Christ. And then do what you did at first. Follow the Lord. And then he gives them a warning. The warning he gives them is simply this. If not, if not, otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, I want us to think about this just for a second because when you read that list of eight or nine things that he said they were doing well, and then you said, but I got one little problem with you, and that's you're, you're not quite as passionate as you once were. You think, well, that church is doing pretty well. They're good, good, good for them. And yet, the point he makes is, unless you get that right, the other eight or nine things are not going to sustain you. And unless you get this right, I'm going to remove your lampstand. What does that mean? That's a great question. I can tell you what I personally think through my study and all of that means. I think it means he would remove their influence, their ability to witness, and possibly even the reality of their church. This is what we have to realize is that in the grand scheme of God's plan, he does not have to have any of us or our church to accomplish his plan. The number of churches across America that are shutting their doors every year is its crazy. And many of them at one time were great, thriving, important churches. And sometimes churches just have life cycles. That's just what happens. But sometimes it's because they get reminiscent about what it used to be or what could have been or they aren't willing to move forward or they lose their passion for Christ in the midst of it and it just becomes a social function for them to come and to be a part of and to sing the same songs and to hear a message every week instead of focusing their attention on the passion of following Christ and as a result eventually they wither and die. And he says if you don't get this right If you don't get the love that you had at first, the passion you had at first, that rekindling, if you don't remember and repent and do the works, then you're going to have your witness or your influence or your church removed. There's a line in here. We're not going to really talk about this line very much because... um, First of all, I don't really understand who the Nicolaitans are. and We'll talk about that more in a couple of weeks when they're mentioned again. It says, you do have this, you hate the practice of the Galatians, which I also hate. Just the point there that, that he says, listen, I'm not saying that it's all bad again. I'm just saying, you have some good things, but if you don't get this right, doctrinally you're pure. But if you don't get this right, your passion, then there are going to be problems. And then he gives us kind of the encouragement warning at the end, verse 7. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the one who conquers, the one who gets this right, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The tree of life is what gives us eternal life. In the garden originally, it was what sustained them for eternity. 
What he says is, keep pushing forward. Rekindle that love for God and others that you had at the beginning, that passion you had. And as you do that, know that when this is over, there is a tree of eternal life awaiting you in paradise. Push through the difficulty here and trust in him. So here's the question today. If Jesus were to descend into our church or were to dictate a letter to John that was dictated to me, that was then dictated to you about our church, what would he say? And is it possible he might say to us, listen, I see your church and you're doing a great job. You're hosting the Korean convention and you did a great job with VBS last week. And I saw your youth did an awesome job with G-Fuge. And I know there's going on a mission trip next week to Denver. You're doing lots of great things. And doctrinally, you're preaching from the Bible. You're teaching Sunday school from the Bible that you hold firm to the doctrine of what's happening. I see the activity that is here and the works that you're doing and the good works that are happening. But I have this against you. You individually, you as a church, have abandoned the love you had at first. And it's become about doing those activities in the way that you want to do those activities or they need to be done because those have to be done and that's what you do instead of out of a deep passion and relationship with me that leads to a love for other people. If you're in a place in your life where you say, it's definitely not now, that is the time in my life when I have been closest to and most passionate about my relationship with Jesus. And we just end today with the same three words that he gave to them. Remember, think about what Christ did for you. Think about that moment of salvation. Think about those times in your life when you have had revival, when God has spurred you. Repent. Admit those things in your life that have gotten in your way, that have prevented you from doing those things. Remember, repent. And then to go back and to do the things that God has called you to do. Return to those things. Out of the passionate desire of your heart that comes from following Jesus. Don't make it into a lifeless ritual. But let it be an overflow of worship. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we have gathered in this place, we pray, Lord, that it is not just out of ritual. Or this is what we do. Or this is the Sunday morning activity of our lives. Or that we feel better about ourselves when we come to church on Sunday because that just makes us feel better. But Lord, that it comes out of a heart that is passionately devoted to you. Lord, I pray for us as a church that we remember the heights that we had when we were passionate about (coughs) you, Lord. That we would repent. Of personal agendas and our own desires superseding yours. Of seeking our will and not yours. And that we would return, Lord, to what you've called us to do. 
I pray, Lord, that in the midst of all of this, that your name is the one that receives the glory and that you would use this place to bring glory to your name and to advance your kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.